Yeah, let's do that. That's true. Dr. Payne, <laughs> in your own words, please introduce yourself and your interests in your career. Okay. Um, so I'm Dr. Jennifer Payne, and I direct the Johns Hopkins Women's Mood Disorder Center. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry here, and my career has really been in the clinical management of women with psychiatric disorders during and after pregnancy, and my research has been on genetics and biomarkers of postpartum depression. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Thank you for joining us. And uh, the reason that we came to talk to you is that you gave a great Grand Rounds presentation at Hopkins on the treatment of mood disorders during pregnancy. And we thought that this is something that people would really benefit from hearing more about outside of the academic community. I think there's a real drought of information out there. Completely agree. And I feel like every week I get women referred to me who've been given the wrong information about how to manage their psychiatric illness during pregnancy. And so I really appreciate you inviting me to give this podcast so that we can get some correct information out there. Yeah, we would love for the opportunity to make that happen. Before we begin, I must ask for our listeners, what is a mood disorder? That is a great question. So like most psychiatric disorders, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell what's a psychiatric disorder and what's normal because everybody has a mood. Um, And our moods go low when something bad happens and get elevated when something good happens. So a mood disorder is kind of like diabetes. Everybody's got a blood sugar, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But when your blood sugar consistently runs too high, that becomes diabetes. Um, With mood, it's when your mood takes on a life of its own um, and doesn't necessarily respond appropriately to outside influences. Um, And mood disorders are accompanied by other symptoms like changes in sleep and appetite, suicidal thoughts, changes in self-attitude. But essentially, you know, a mood disorder is a mood that's taken on a life of its own. I love that definition. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that is really helpful thinking of it like on a continuum like that, since, as you say, we all feel low mood and high mood sometimes. So you mentioned before that there's a lot of bad information out there and people coming in with some misconceptions. What do you think the the most common misconceptions you've encountered are in women's mental health? So I, I think probably the most common one is that women should not be treating psychiatric illness during pregnancy, that Mm -hmm. they should be off of all psychiatric medications during pregnancy. And the data, the literature really does not support that. The literature supports that most psychiatric medications can be used relatively safely during pregnancy. There are definitely exceptions to that. But that not treating psychiatric illness during pregnancy actually results in poor outcomes, not only for mom, but for the baby. And people forget that kind of in the equation of trying to figure out what to continue during pregnancy and and what to discontinue. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, this sounds like a little bit of an extension of the cultural attitude toward mental health in general, that a lot of it is like, you should just tough it out, have a stiff upper lip, if you're depressed, you should just get over it. Like, why do you have to be yeah. so sad all the time? Yeah, I just I just wrote a, a piece on stigma. And I think there are kind of these two opposing views of mental illness in the general public. And one is that psychiatric illness is not quote-unquote real, and that people need to pull up their socks and get on with it. And then the exact opposite of that is that people with mental illness are inherently dangerous. And in the editorial, I actually say it's kind of like people have two completely 
opposing views of brain tumors. One is that they're all benign and and the other is that they're all, you know, mortal. And um, the reality is most brain tumors are in between those two extremes. And most psychiatric illness is in between those two extremes as well. Yeah, and it's interesting, people holding those two really extreme viewpoints, I think that makes it harder for them to accept the the middle ground in that a lot of people have uh, these problems. I mean, the, the burden of depression is absolutely astronomical, but the truth of the matter is it's very treatable in the mo- vast majority of cases, is my understanding. Right, and I, I would venture to argue that that all of us either have a psychiatric disorder or are have someone with a psychiatric disorder in our family or you know close circle of friends and the reality is psychiatric disorders are way more common than a lot of cancers or or health problems and yet we treat them very differently and i think we really need as a society to move towards treating them and talking about them just like we talk about our cholesterol levels yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. To me, I think the one of the biggest problems with stigma is just this idea that people can't quite decide if depression is an illness or just a, a byproduct of living in our society. Right. And that's it's challenging considering that we do have tools to help people. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that stigma keeps a lot of people from getting the help that they need. And that, in turn, affects their family and their coworkers, and you know what they're able to achieve in their life. I, I have a, a patient who I'm very fond of who came to me in his 50s and really had had untreated depression for decades. Wow. Um, had tried several different medications, nothing very aggressive. And I was able to get him well for the first time in years. And it was great. But about six months into being well, he came to me and said, well, now what do I do? I'm not married. I don't have the career I would have. Um, You know, this really impacted my life. And you know, I feel great being better, but, I, you know, I'm in my 50s. And it was just an incredibly sad uh, point that he, you know, his life was incredibly different from what it would have been had he had more aggressive management earlier. Yeah, that's scary. I mean, one of the big wake-up calls I had is back in undergrad, I remember hearing about the neuroanatomical consequences of depression in animal models that yes. the the dendritic arbors, basically the branches coming off of neurons are affected by depression. And that really was a shift for me from this is something that you can endure to this is something that you need to do something about or it's going to have consequences. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm very familiar with that literature. And, and you know, I think most people in the general public don't understand that parts of your brain are shrinking when you're depressed and you're not getting treatment. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yes, it is, actually. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that would really help a little bit with stigma is for people to realize that even though you can't see it like a rash, I mean, there are detectable anatomic changes. This is not, quote-unquote, all in one's head. Com- completely agree with you. There, There's a saying in psychiatry that every time we get kind of a neuroanatomical basis for something, neurologists steal our illnesses. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm waiting for the day when they steal depression because they, they probably should already be stealing it based on, <laughs> on the literature. Fair. We're going to have to stand our ground. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, the trouble is that at the end of the day, I feel like we in neurology are I mean, we're treating the same organ and like things like Alzheimer's and, and dementia, it is, there's such, such a blur between what we should be uh, dealing with and what they should be dealing with. I feel like someday there might be a convergence of the two fields again and, you know, just maybe subspecialties dealing with more affective and psychiatric illness and mm-hmm. subspecialties dealing with more motor illness and peripheral nervous system stuff. But, well, I was originally going to be a neurologist and, until I did my ah. psychiatry rotation oh, yeah. um, and completely fell in love with psychiatry. Yeah, I had the same experience. I was always kind of interested in psychiatry, but I, I loved my psychiatry rotation. I remember vividly driving home and remembering, or like I was thinking about the patients and I couldn't stop thinking about the patients and that hadn't happened on any other rotation. So I realized that this is where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I mean, neurology is a wonderful field, but I feel like there's <laughs> always a temptation to see humans as like a connection of or a collection of circuits rather than uh, something more fleshed out. Well, and and what I like about psychiatry is that you know most of the time you can make a real difference and. With neurology, that's not necessarily the case. So, you know, if someone has Alzheimer's, you can slow it down. If someone's had a stroke, you can do rehabilitation. But when someone's depressed, most of the time, given enough time, I'll get them better. And so it makes a big difference. Yeah, and that's that has been really uh, invigorating to see cases of treatment of mood disorders. I mean, people with depression, people with bipolar disorder can do incredibly well with the tools we already have, which is one of the real positives of our field, I think. I completely agree. Another point of clarification before we move forward, what is sort of the distinction between depression and bipolar disorder? And how is depression diagnosed in someone? So, so a couple things there. So psychiatric diagnoses, you know, one thing that all psychiatric diagnoses have in common is that function is is impacted. So for instance, we have all had a low mood in response to something. All of us have had an obsessive thought at, at some point or another. And and but we don't all have depression. We don't all have OCD. It's when those symptoms again, kind of take on a life of their own and impact someone's functioning that you then have an illness. And like I said before, it's kind of like diabetes. It's when your blood sugar starts to have an impact on your fun- your bodily functioning that you b- then have an illness. Same with hypertension for that matter. The difference between depression and bipolar disorder is that patients with bipolar disorder do have depressive episodes, or most of them do, but they also have elevated mood episodes, which sounds fun, but often isn't. And there are two types of bipolar disorder. There's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. With bipolar 1, you have manic episodes. With bipolar 2, you have hypomanic episodes. Manic episodes means that you have an elevated mood and you have psychotic symptoms or you are dangerous and need to be hospitalized or you do something else that's really out of character for you that causes a lot of trouble, like spending a lot of money and having to declare bankruptcy. Hypomania means you have an elevated mood without being psychotic, without being dangerous, and without getting yourself into too much trouble. Now, people often think that bipolar 2 is a less severe form of the illness because people have hypomanias compared to manias. And I always like to point out that severity really has more to do with response to medication and compliance Mm -hmm. with medication. So there are a lot of people with bipolar 1 disorder who have a full and complete response to, say, lithium Mm -hmm. and are functional and able to work and carry on and have a normal life for decades. And there are a lot of people with bipolar 2 who may not have as good a response to medication who then are really kind of disabled by their condition. So I don't like to think about them in terms of severity because I I really do think that has much more to do with your course of illness and response to medication. And one thing that I've heard about the manic and hypomanic states is that uh, in the case of depression, it's often the patient who's bothered by the symptoms. And in the case of mania and hypomania, it's often the people around the patient who are more troubled by it, which I think comes back to the importance of getting collateral information in a psychiatric history. Because I imagine it's very easy for primary care providers to miss a bipolar and mistaking it for depression if they're not either asking the right questions or asking the right people. Completely agree. So people show up in the depressed phase of the illness most of the time. I've had a few patients come in and say, you know, I have these periods where I get a lot of stuff done, but I actually get very irritable and I get into fights with everybody. And so irritable elevated mood states will often get people into the doctor. But when people are feeling really good and getting lots of stuff done, they don't go to the doctor for that. They show up in the depressed phase. Um, And so 
Um, it's, it's actually really important for primary care doctors to be asking about a family history of bipolar disorder oh, okay. because that's one of the big clues that someone may have a predisposition to bipolar disorder. And then the other simple thing they can ask is, have you ever had periods of time where you don't need to sleep very much and maybe you get a lot done or you feel more creative? Um, I kind of ask a leading question al- along those lines. Um, and then if, if someone says, well, well, then, then you explore it um, more thoroughly. Um, I also think a lot of times people don't recognize particularly hypomanic periods and their partners or family members will. They'll say, yeah, you know, they have these periods of time where they're great and um, we do a lot of partying and they talk faster. Um, and that can be really helpful. So talking to family members can be helpful. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So... Another question I wanted to ask was, what do you wish that more people knew about managing psychiatric illness with respect to its interaction with pregnancy and the menstrual cycle, just issues specific to women who are facing psychiatric illness? So um, I'll, I'll start with pregnancy. You know, I said before, and I, I will reiterate this because this is, you know, probably one of my biggest messages is that it's actually important to treat psychiatric illness during pregnancy. The second thing I would say, though, is that one of the things that we think happens across the course of pregnancy is that blood levels of psychiatric medications drop. And so sometimes it's not enough to just treat psychiatric illness. You really need to be monitoring a pregnant woman and be on top of potentially needing to increase the psychiatric medication, particularly in that third trimester. Okay. So one of the biggest risk factors for being depressed in the postpartum time period is being depressed during pregnancy. And so a lot of people are reluctant to increase their psychiatric medication during pregnancy. And so they'll get into the third trimester, they'll start to get depressed because their blood levels are dropping. Yeah. And they'll say, yeah, I don't want to increase my medication. And I would advocate for going ahead and increasing the medication. Because if you can get rid of depression before you go into that delivery time period, you'll have a far lower risk of postpartum depression. Postpartum depression has been shown to have effects on IQ and language development Mm. in exposed infants. There is a robust literature on the effects of postpartum depression on infant development. And so you really do not want to be depressed in the postpartum time period. That's the time when you need to be feeling good and stimulating and talking to your baby and not be sitting on the couch depressed and not interacting because it affects their brain. Yeah, that's a really important message because I imagine that as soon as the child comes out, the parents are going to be really focused on that. So to bring the the message back to taking care of that child might be a powerful message since, again, if it was just the mother struggling, there might be a certain subset of people who just want to tough it out. And I feel Correct. like here the evidence is showing that it's not something that can just be toughed out. That's right. And and I, I tell this story all the time, and so I repeat myself, but I think it really illustrates a, a good point. When I wanted to get pregnant the first time, okay, so, so I tell this story all the time, but I think it nicely illustrates the point I'm trying to make. When I um, wanted to have my first pregnancy, I went to my OB-GYN. I have asthma. And so I said to her, so when do I go off my asthma medication? And she started laughing at me. And she said, you know, (laughs) oxygen's awfully good for babies. (laughs) And I think people miss that mom's psychiatric health being stable and good is awfully good for babies. And they just miss that point. Yeah. And I actually wanted to ask about that specifically. We think about exposure to psychiatric and mood stabilization medications as something that the, the fetus has to go through. But do you know what evidence there is for the exposure to things like cortisol and the other negative consequences of being in a depression or a mania, how that might affect fetal development? Sure. So, you know, I think we are just beginning to fully explore that topic. But what we do know is that when mom's depressed during pregnancy, she's dumping cortisol. Mm -hmm. And so they're 
babies are expo- are born with elevated levels of cortisol, and those elevated levels persist till at least adolescence. And if you read the animal literature, elevated levels of cortisol in animals are associated with depression and anxiety-like behaviors and is actually one model for depression and anxiety in mm. animals. Okay. And so those of us in the field think that this may be one of the ways that we pass depression and mood disorders onto our children oh. is through exposure and pregnancy. Now, that remains to be proven and obviously is kind of hard to prove. But I think when you look at the literature as a whole, that, that that's a hypothesis that is a very reasonable one. So I think a lot of people think about the exposure to psychiatric medication in utero and compare mm-hmm. that to the risk of no exposure, when in reality, they need to be comparing the risk of exposure to medication to the risk of exposure to psychiatric mm-hmm. illness. And that leap is more easily made for medical illness like asthma and is less obvious for psychiatric illness, but really should be the exact same thing. And so thinking about the second half of that coin, the concern that I'm sure many women have and maybe the source of a lot of the misconceptions towards treating mood disorders in women who are pregnant, what are some of the, the bad side effects of medications for depression and bipolar disorder, and sort of how do you uh, navigate that as a pregnant woman? So so let's separate out depression mm-hmm. and anxiety from bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is a little bit more complicated, but also a little bit more obvious mm-hmm. about treatment during pregnancy. You know, a manic pregnant woman you know, requires hospitalization and and treatment, and that seems to be a little bit more obvious to everybody. So let's start with depression and anxiety. There's a huge literature on the safety of antidepressants in pregnancy. And one of the things that's hard is that many of the early studies that were done were comparing outcomes for women who took antidepressants during pregnancy to outcomes for women from the general population. Now, the problem with that is that women with psychiatric disorders are a different population from the general population. They have other exposures and risk factors, behaviors, and illnesses at higher rates than the general population. So, for example, in the psychiatric population, women are more likely to smoke, use other substances. They're more likely to be overweight or obese. They have higher rates of diabetes, and there's a whole host of other risk factors that are different from the general population. So those early studies found that antidepressant exposure was associated with certain infant outcomes that were not desirable. So there was an early literature on heart defects. There was the persistent pulmonary hypertension question. And more recently, there's been a robust literature on autism. But if you take the studies that actually control for the underlying psychiatric illness, this is what we call confounding by indication, meaning that you're taking an antidepressant in pregnancy for a reason. You're taking it because you have a psychiatric illness. And if you control for that psychiatric illness and the associated behaviors and risk factors, those studies are negative. So studies which have very carefully controlled for the underlying illness and other behaviors associated with the psychiatric population are very reassuring. And actually, I think antidepressants are probably the best studied class of medications in pregnancy. They are just starting to look at Tylenol, which they hand out like candy in pregnancy. And so I think when you look at the literature as a whole and you understand things about statistics and about controlling for other confounds, the literature on antidepressant use in pregnancy is actually very reassuring. Okay. Now let's talk about bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. So medications that are used for bipolar disorder, just for the audience that isn't as familiar with psychiatric treatment, there are essentially kind of two classes of medications that we use to treat bipolar disorder. One is mood-stabilizing medications, and those consist of lithium and a few anti-seizure medications like Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, and, and then there are antipsychotic medications. Antipsychotic medications can act as mood-stabilizing medications in addition to the mood stabilizers. 
Now, what we know for bipolar disorder is that the medication called Depakote has a very high rate of organ malformations and associated problems in in the infant. Um, And so, in general, you do not want to get pregnant while taking Depakote. And so it's a medication that I actually try very hard not to prescribe to women of reproductive age. And if I do, I make sure that I talk to them seriously about birth control. I often put them into contact with an OB-GYN to get them on birth control because you really do not want to... Mm. um, to get pregnant while taking it. It's about a 10% risk of major organ malformations, and there's a higher rate of autism with exposure in utero. Now, some countries have actually banned the use of Depakote Mm -hmm. in women of reproductive age who have bipolar disorder. Now, I have a big problem with that because there are cases who do not respond to anything but Depakote. Mm. And they do not ban the use of Depakote. It's an anti-seizure medicine in women of reproductive age with epilepsy. And I think that goes back to the stigma associated with psychiatric illness. Like, this isn't serious enough that you would want to potentially expose an unborn child to it. And I I really have a hard time with that. Yeah, considering that, I mean, going into mania is definitely unsafe for... Manic Um, women have sex with multiple people. They use substances. They run amok. They don't eat. They don't sleep. They get into dangerous situations. Really, uh, you know, that... That is something that absolutely is serious and needs to be treated. Yeah, and my understanding is that people with bipolar disorder are at much greater risk for self-destructive behavior such as suicidality, especially if they go into what are referred to as mixed states where their their energy is elevated but their mood is irritable. Mm, Correct. Because not to go too far off topic, one of the characteristics of depression is low energy, so it's possible for people to be actually interested in suicide but not have the energy to carry it out, whereas if they're then swinging into a manic state, they're at much greater risk. Yes, and sometimes manic people commit suicide thinking that they're saving the world or uh, sacrificing yeah. themselves for somebody. So there are, there are all kinds of ways. Um, you don't have to just be depressed to commit suicide. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear, at least phenomenologically, that bipolar disorder is at least as dangerous as seizure disorders to patients. Correct. And that's why I don't agree with that in in other countries. Hmm. So to go back to mood stabilizing medications during pregnancy. So we try to avoid Depakote and we also Mm -hmm. try to avoid carbamazepine or Tegretol because it also has a, a somewhat higher rate of organ malformations. Lithium, which is kind of one of the standard mood-stabilizing medications, got a very bad reputation for use during pregnancy because there was a study a number of years ago that found that there was a high rate of a particular cardiac malformation associated with lithium. And the interesting thing is that study was done, th- this is kind of paraphrasing the study, mm-hmm. but it was it was kind of like there was an advertisement that said, if you took lithium during pregnancy <sighs> and there was a problem, give us a call. <laughs> oh, no. And so another study was done a few years ago that looked at the total mm-hmm. of lithium exposed pregnancies or looked, you know, looked for women who had issues and women who did not have issues. And what they found was that there was a less than 1% chance of having that cardiac malformation, which is called Epstein's. And, And so those of us in the field think that patients with severe bipolar 1 disorder who respond well to lithium, that that may be a reasonable risk for for some patients. And so lithium can be used during pregnancy. You do have to think about that cardiac malformation, but it is, again, far less likely than relapse of the bipolar illness. The studies that have looked at women who, with bipolar disorder who have stopped their mood stabilizers for, for pregnancy find that 80 to 100% of them will relapse with the illness during pregnancy if wow. they stop their mood wow. stabilizers. And so you can almost guarantee that someone's going to get sick if they stop their mood stabilizers. There are definitely a few exceptions out there. But with th- those kind of percentages, less than a 1% chance 
really, you know, I think may be worth the risk in some cases. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I'm imagining that there are treatments available for Epstein's as well. There are. There's surgical interventions. It can usually be identified prior to delivery. You know, you wouldn't want your child to have Epstein's anomaly, but but you also wouldn't want to lose a pregnancy during a psychotic mania either. Yeah. So, you know, I think you have to weigh the risks mm-hmm. and benefits. And I always say there are no hard and fast rules, that it all depends on the particular patient and how dangerous their behavior has mm-hmm. been when they're ill, their relapse rate, et cetera. So every case is an individual case when, when we're building a treatment plan. Now, antipsychotic medications generally seem to be pretty safe during pregnancy. The most recent study found that there was a mild developmental delay in Mm -hmm. babies exposed to antipsychotics in pregnancy at six months, and that that mild developmental delay disappeared at 12 months. Wow. Now, what's hard is we, we think that having the psychiatric illness is, again, also an exposure, and that particular study did not control for the psychiatric illness. So teasing this stuff apart is still an ongoing process, particularly in bipolar disorder, because it's a much more rare illness. It's it's Mm -hmm. easier to do large population studies on antidepressant exposure than it is to antipsychotic exposure. I have a point of clarification before we move forward again. We've mentioned the word psychotic and antipsychotic medication. What does it mean to be in a psychotic state and what kind of category does that fall into compared to anxiety and depression and bipolar disorder? Right. That's a great question. So people get really confused by the by the term psychotic. And psychotic is really a description of certain symptoms and is not a psychiatric illness in and of itself. So you can have psychiatric symptoms that are psychotic in various different illnesses, including major depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and even delirium. And so psychotic symptoms really refer to symptoms that a patient experiences kind of when they lose touch with reality. So psychotic symptoms generally consist of hallucinations, which is having a sensory experience without sensory input. So hearing voices or seeing something that isn't there, there. Um, Or delusions, which is technically the official definition is a fixed false idiosyncratic belief, Uh, (laughs) which I think I have said way too much in my lifetime. And so basically it's believing something to be true that isn't true, that doesn't have to do with a particular religion or a cultural belief. So for instance, I was once called to evaluate a woman in the emergency room who told the resident that she had been speaking with dead people. And it turned out she was from a a cultural group that practiced the voodoo religion, and that is a very prominent part Mm -hmm. of that religion. So she was not psychotic. That Mm. was part of her cultural belief system. So... But people will believe things to be true that aren't true. So psychotic symptoms can be part of various different psychiatric illness. So, for instance, you could be depressed and believe that you actually murdered someone and that's why you feel so bad and you've been cursed by God. That would be a psychotic Mm -hmm. symptom in depression. Sometimes people think that if you are psychotic that you have schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a very particular psychiatric disorder that does indeed have psychotic symptoms but is much more than that. It also has cognitive symptoms and social dysfunction as, as part of it. It's a very chronic psychiatric illness. So being psychotic does not translate into having schizophrenia. And I think that's an important point. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate clearing that up. I do think that it's surprising to a lot of people that psychotic symptoms can present in so many different illnesses, especially something as common as depression. Well, and the other point is they're actually normal in certain conditions. So if you're delirious from a high fever and you hallucinate, that's considered normal. Um, So (laughs) our brain is able to generate hallucinations and delusional thoughts normally. And again, it's about, is it impairing your function in, in in a bigger way? 
way to make it a psychiatric illness. Some people will hallucinate when they're falling asleep or waking up. I remember one time I had a, a dream that I was covered in bees. Oh, no. And <laughs> as I was, I was waking up, I could feel them uh, on my skin, which was really creepy. But I, was, I woke up and I was like, huh, I just had a hallucination. And, you know, but that's an example of a very normal phenomenon. Yeah. Well, and I mean, dreams themselves are essentially hallucinations. Correct. And we all have experienced that at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I love hearing about all of this stuff being on a spectrum. I think that's really an important concept to, to just take in that all of this sort of is normal until it gets to a point where it's not normal for it to affect your life that much. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I also tell my residents when I'm teaching, you know, I, I particularly like the numbers three and seven for no good reason. <laughs> and I set my alarm to like 6.33. I don't have to set my alarm to 6.33, which is why I don't have OCD. But that is an obsessive thought right now. And um, so, but I would, I would argue that that's normal because it's not impacting my functioning. Okay. So, Dr. Payne, I wanted to go through a couple scenarios with you and maybe scenarios that might be common to a lot of our women and men supporting women um, who are listening on this podcast. So I'll just use myself as the example. Say I am a woman, a young woman who has either depression or bipolar disorder, and you can let me know if there's a difference between the two. And I am looking to start a family to get pregnant for the first time. I'm on a medication and that hasn't been changed in at least six months. And, you know, I feel like overall my, my symptoms of my disease are pretty well controlled. What should I, should I be making an appointment to talk to you? What would I want to talk to you about? Um, what kind of guidance would you be giving me? That's a great scenario. And it's a very common one that I, I get, I'd say, every week. You know, I think the, the first thing to do is to talk to whoever is treating you, which may be a psychiatrist, may be an internal medicine doctor, mm -hmm. and talk to them about the fact that you want to get pregnant and whether you're on a medication that could be taken safely during pregnancy or not. Now, one of the issues today is that there's still a lot of misinformation and there are a lot of doctors that are not well informed. And some doctors will be honest about that and say, you know, I don't know. And if that's the case, then I would suggest that you try to see someone who is what we're currently calling a reproductive psychiatrist or someone oh. who has an interest in psychiatric management during pregnancy. Also, if you get information from your doctor that you're not sure is accurate, like mm -hmm. you should be off of all meds during pregnancy, I would suggest seeing somebody who's a specialist in this area. Now, there aren't that many of us, and so, you know, I, I don't want to be overrun with patients um, <laughs> because I'm already overrun with patients, but there's, there's a lot of information out there. I've written a number of reviews. There are some good books out there, but... I think if you're in doubt, you should see someone who says that they're comfortable managing psychiatric illness during pregnancy. Okay. I think there are a lot of factors that go into deciding what to do for a woman during pregnancy, one of which is the severity of her illness and whether she's been hospitalized, what medication she's on. So, for instance, we like to use on average, older medications that we know something about compared to the newer medications mm -hmm. because we don't have as much information about them during pregnancy. So there's a lot that kind of goes into it. And I would make sure that your doctor is comfortable with those kinds of decisions. And if not, I would seek a consult somewhere else. Okay. And what if I'm a woman with depression or anxiety and I'm worried that the extra stress of pregnancy is going to take me off balance? Um, is there anything I can do to prevent that from happening, to make my sort of my response, my coping skills to stressors better um, before I even become pregnant? Or is this something that I just need to make sure I keep touching base with my doctor about? Well, I do think it's something you need to keep touching base with your doctor about. I think it's worth discussing with your significant other as well mm -hmm. as kind of a, a plan for management of stress during pregnancy. 
I, I have a lot of women that I actually suggest that while they're pregnant that they get cognitive behavioral therapy or mm. some other type mindfulness-based therapy because they actually have time while they're pregnant if it's mm-hmm. their first pregnancy. And once the kid comes, um, there's no time. <laughs> so you don't want to be playing catch-up after delivery. So it's a, it's a good time to kind of focus on yourself and to think through some of the habits you have that maybe aren't so healthy. I also recommend yoga and meditation. I personally adore yoga and find that it really helps me manage stress. Mm-hmm. And I think doing those kinds of healthy things can can be wonderful during pregnancy. Okay. Next scenario is I am a healthy woman. Um, maybe someone in my family has depression, um, but not me. And I am getting pregnant for the first time. During my pregnancy, I start to have changes to my mood and I'm worried that I may be getting depressed. What are sort of warning signs for women who are pregnant? Does sort of depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder look any different in a woman who is pregnant or is it kind of the same warning signs for anyone? So in general, it's kind of the same warning signs. However, if you've ever been pregnant, there's this nice long period, particularly early on, where you essentially sleep anytime you sit down. Okay. Um, and and that you're tired. And it's not necessarily that your mood is low. It's mm-hmm. just that you are really kind of conserving energy and putting all your body's energy into that developing baby. Mm-hmm. And so... I always look for things that I think are kind of cardinal symptoms, which include like changes in self-attitude. So, you know, most women who are tired early in pregnancy don't think they're a bad person. Someone thinking that they're a bad person is most likely depressed. Suicidal thoughts, anything that's kind of extreme would definitely be more along the lines of, of a depression. Feeling hopeless. And, and negative all the time would also be, be symptoms. And I think you want the symptoms to be there most of the day, every day for at least two weeks or longer. Mm-hmm. This can't be like a fleeting momentary thing. Okay. And in that case, I would want to get diagnosed and start treatment according to our sort of discussion prior. That, that would be my recommendation. Okay. Um, and not every patient follows my recommendations. But, mm-hmm. but yes, I would argue, again, you know, biggest risk factor for postpartum depression is being depressed during pregnancy. Okay. So getting treatment, it's kind of like saying, I'll wait to get treatment for my asthma attack until after delivery. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. that doesn't work very well. Um, and... Just because you can suffer through doesn't make it good for the baby. Okay, excellent. And then the third scenario is I'm a young woman. I've had my first baby, and it's just a couple weeks after the baby was born. Can you tell us the difference between postpartum blues, postpartum depression, when it's really dangerous? Sure, absolutely. So there are really three different types of postpartum quote-unquote mood disorders. So one is postpartum blues, then there's postpartum depression, and then there's postpartum psychosis, which is a very serious disorder. Postpartum blues is experienced by about 80% of the women's population. I kind of think of it as PMS. Um, so <laughs> most women will experience some mood changes when they undergo hormonal fluctuations. Um, and that can be premenstrually and that can be in the postpartum time period. So, but postpartum blues, first of all, generally lasts at most a few days. It's often just a few hours, and it's really more mood lability. So we think of blues as being down and low, but sometimes women are very tearful because they love the baby so much, and they're just really emotional. And they often will be irritable towards their partner or their mother or mother-in-law. So it's really more of a roller coaster ride of mood lability. Um, It does not include symptoms like suicidal thoughts of not being able to take care of yourself. It's generally kind of tearful emotionality that is self-limited. 
Postpartum depression is experienced by about 15% of the general population and in higher rates in women with pre-existing mood disorders. So about 40% of women who have a pre-existing mood disorder will get depressed in the postpartum time period. It is actually the most common complication of childbirth. Mm. Wow. Which to me means we should be having a huge public outcry about it. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's not that obvious to everybody. And postpartum depression is a depression like any other major depressive episode. It's just that there's a tiny human involved as well. And and that tiny human is exposed to the maternal depression and that can have effects on their development. Yeah. Postpartum psychosis is generally seen in women with bipolar disorder, and it also has a genetic basis. So a family history of postpartum psychosis puts someone at very high risk of having postpartum psychosis. It's a really rare condition. It's like about 0.1% of the general population. But in women with pre-existing bipolar disorder, it's a very common complication. And it generally looks like a manic episode. So an elevated mood state, lots of energy, and having psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, and delusions. Some women will experience a postpartum psychosis with a low mood state or kind of an indeterminate mood state. Postpartum psychosis can look like a delirium. Many times, so women will often appear very confused. They'll get very disorganized. It's essentially a psychiatric emergency and pretty much requires hospitalization. And that is because the woman is at risk of not only harming herself, but the baby. And even though that's a rare phenomenon, it can happen not just because the woman wants to hurt the baby, mm -hmm. um, but it can happen through disorganization. So leaving the baby in the car in the dead of winter because they're disorganized, for example. So that's a psychiatric emergency and really requires hospitalization and generally requires treatment for a presumed bipolar disorder. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. I had a couple of other questions I was hoping to ask, unless you have anything else. No, no, let's jump to you. All right. One thing I just wanted to cover quickly is during your grand rounds, you had talked a little bit about how pregnancy categories that the FDA used to use are a little bit confusing. And I think that that information is still out there to the general public a lot. And mm -hmm. I was just hoping you could speak to that a little bit and help people understand what to take away from that information when they see it online. Sure. So in general, the FDA categories are, are really not very useful in psychiatry mm -hmm. um, and, and deciding what to take during pregnancy or not. The FDA is phasing them out mm -hmm. because of this, because there's a lot of confusion surrounding the different categories. But you're right. They're still out there online. I can type in FDA category for... Prozac, and I'll, I'll get it right back on, on Google. So I think it's important to have at least a basic understanding of the FDA categories. Apparently, what happened was originally there were six categories that nicely divided up the amount of evidence that we have for safety during pregnancy. And they decided that that was too many categories. So they combined six categories into five, <laughs> which means that there's mixed levels of evidence for safety in some of the categories. And so the categories range from A, which is considered safe, to X, which is considered unsafe. Now, there's some other little blips in here. X also contains medications that are not necessarily unsafe during pregnancy, but that you just wouldn't use. So for instance, birth control pills are category X. And that's very misleading because a lot of women who accidentally get pregnant while taking birth control pills will think that they need to have an abortion because they've exposed the infant to something that cannot be taken during pregnancy. Yeah, that sounds like a terrifying scenario. That's right. And that's not accurate. It's just that you would never take birth control pills during pregnancy. So therefore, it's category S. <laughs> So you can see how some of this misinformation can be misinterpreted yeah, and result sure. in decisions that you don't want to make. Probably the other category that is most misunderstood is category B. So category B technically is supposed to be safer than category C or D, or X for that matter. But the problem is category B means either that 
we have some evidence in humans that it's considered relatively safe, but not enough to put it in A. Or we have no information in humans, and we have animal information that suggests that it would be safe. So all new medications that come out that have been shown to be relatively safe in animals go into category B. So one common scenario that I see over and over are women who were on a category C medication who get pregnant and then are switched to a category B medication because their doctor thinks it's safer than the category C. And in reality, it's a new medication that we know nothing about. Hmm. And the category C medication has a lot more evidence of, of known issues or, or unknown issues during pregnancy. And so you would want to stay on the category C medication. Gotcha. Now, the other problem with that scenario, just to be clear, is that A, the woman's already pregnant. B, the babies are exposed to the category C medication. D, you've now switched to a category B medication about which we know nothing. And so the baby's now exposed to that. Mm-hmm. You don't know if the category B medication is going to work as well as the category C medication. So then the, the mother may get ill. So now the baby's up to four exposures. Mm. Wow. Okay. Whereas if she had stayed on the category C medication that was working for her, that would be one exposure. Okay. And yeah. Those are the kind of clinical scenarios that I think about every day that I think can get confusing to people who don't do it every day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially as you're saying, category C, it sounds like there might be a lot of known problems that in many cases, like the case of Epstein's, it might be unfortunate, but something that we know how to work around if it's identified. Correct. And that's that's why we really take every case scenario as an individual. And you really want to think about the number of exposures. I always tell patients who are on, for example, newer antidepressants that we know nothing about, if we want to switch to an older antidepressant that we know more about, we need to do that before pregnancy. The time to do that is not after you get pregnant because the horse is out of the barn. It's too late to close the door. The baby's already exposed at that point. And then you risk kind of the scenario of getting ill and switching and another exposure, et cetera. Gotcha. Yeah, I can see how that would spiral out really quickly potentially. Correct. Okay. Uh, So one thing I wanted to discuss, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, how more and more people are bringing midwives in to help with the process of going through pregnancy. I was wondering what thoughts you have on how we might be able to form an effective alliance with midwives and what messages you would have for them to serve a helpful role in mental health management within their scope of practice. Sure. So I, you know, midwives are a wonderful addition to an obstetrical practice and um, I think they, in general, do a really wonderful job. I, I think that there are two areas where they can be really helpful if they are educated in this area, and one is screening. So I think every pregnant woman should be screened for pre-existing psychiatric disorders and for new onset, particularly depression or anxiety. And, and then the other area is having a knowledge that you can use psychiatric medications during pregnancy and that there are really good reasons to do so. Okay. I think if they're educated, a lot of times they're able to spend more time with the patient and explain, you know, kind of the, the literature as a whole as opposed to just giving, you know, a one-sentence recommendation mm-hmm. of whether someone should continue their medication or not. And then in the postpartum time period, I, I think that they can also do screening for a postpartum depression and then, you know, refer on as necessary for treatment. Okay. Yeah, it seems like those are really helpful ways to bring them in. I'm always interested as a aspiring physician scientist myself, I like to talk a little bit about how the field is changing and what direction it's going in. So Throughout the course of your career, how have you seen the field of, of women's health evolve? What what are some of the changes that you've noticed, if any? Yeah, so, well, I, I think there's been a lot of changes in some ways and not a lot of changes in others. So 
One of the things that changed is, you know, when I was uh, in residency training, one of the things that people generally recommended was stopping psychiatric medications for the first trimester. So the first trimester is when all the organs are formed, et cetera. But since that time, there have been studies that have come out that have shown that when you stop psychiatric medications for pregnancy, there's a very high relapse rate. I, I mentioned 80 to 100 percent in women with bipolar disorder. It's about 70 percent in women with major depression. And so those studies really changed our thinking and, and into a more of a prevention of psychiatric illness during pregnancy. So now we don't recommend stopping psychiatric medications for pregnancy. We do recommend thinking about what medications you take during mm-hmm. pregnancy, but um, we don't stop meds for the first trimester now. So that, that has been a big shift. I think one thing that has not shifted as much as I would like it to is the, I would call it stigma associated with doing research, particularly on psychiatric illness during Mm. pregnancy. It is very hard to get grants and IRB approval for for women who are pregnant with psychiatric illness. Mm. And and I, I again I think that has to do with the question of is psychiatric illness real and shouldn't this be a medication that a woman goes off of for for pregnancy. Yeah. And people get very anxious about doing research particularly in psychiatric illness during pregnancy. I would argue though um, that this is exactly what we need to know. You know, psychiatric illness is incredibly common. Pregnancy, incredibly common. Unplanned pregnancy, still at a 50% rate. Yeah. Okay? So we need to be doing this research to understand how we can best manage psychiatric illness during pregnancy. And sticking our head in the sand um, and not doing the research and not having the ability to say the literature shows X is a real problem. And I'd like to see that change in the course of the rest of my career. Yeah, that would be really nice. And the irony to me is the resistance probably comes from trying to protect a vulnerable population Correct. in some ways. Yes. No, people think they're doing the right thing to protect this vulnerable population. But the reality is we really need to know these answers. It's just like the FDA did a, a study on flu vaccination specifically in pregnancy because they said mm. this is what we really need to know this. Yeah. And that makes sense. Do we get the flu vaccination or not when you're pregnant? Does it work when you're pregnant? There's mm-hmm. all kinds of questions. Yeah. And it seems like this is in many ways a, a hair on fire situation because, I mean, the developmental period in infancy, there's so much room for harm and the prevention of harm that if we are able to optimize psychiatric management during that period, I mean, we might see improvements 70 years in the future when the the infant is into old age and Correct. has better mental health as Absolutely. a consequence. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I have never had a, a pediatrician resist the message that <laughs> treating postpartum depression is incredibly important. Mm. They totally get it, which I, I think is, is kind of fascinating. But Yes, I mean, we know that, for example, preterm birth, which is much more common in women with psychiatric illness, whether they take medications or not, has long-term cardiovascular consequences for the health of that infant. Mm -hmm. We're just doing some of these longitudinal studies. So, gosh, don't you think it'd be really good for us to figure out how we can help prevent preterm birth in the psychiatric population? Yeah. And so a follow-up to that question, what changes do you see on the horizon that may be affecting the field in the near future, if there's any sort of positive? <laughs> so, so, well, I think that there, there are a number of, of different issues that have come up over the last few years. One is there's a, a, some really interesting studies using allopregnanolone for the treatment of postpartum depression. Um, so I could probably do a whole podcast on, <laughs> on that. But it's, the studies are very interesting and very positive supporting the use of allopregnanolone for women with postpartum depression. That is given with an infusion. There's an oral compound being developed. But I I think that's going to be a really interesting area to watch over the next several years. 
One of the other things that's changed during the course of my career is that the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Psychiatric Clinical Diagnoses, has changed kind of the specifier for postpartum depression to include the, the pregnancy time period and now are calling illness that starts either during pregnancy or in the immediate postpartum time period a peripartum mm. um, specifier. So I think that there are a lot of good reasons to have moved to the term peripartum depression, mainly at the society level. So for instance, it really emphasizes that women can get ill during pregnancy and that treatment during pregnancy and in the immediate postpartum time period might be a little dicier than treatment outside of the peripartum time period. I also think it acknowledges many women's experience of being depressed during pregnancy. There used to be a rumor that women couldn't possibly be depressed during oh, pregnancy. No. So, I, you know, I think that this emphasizes that that is so not the case. From a scientific perspective, though, I think we lose some data that, that we really should have by moving to the more global term of peripartum depression. So, for instance, my work has demonstrated that postpartum depressive episodes have a genetic basis that runs in families with major depression and bipolar disorder, but only the ones that begin in the immediate postpartum time period. Mm. Um, and I've done work on epigenetic biomarkers of postpartum depression. And women who are depressed during pregnancy and then continue to be depressed postpartum have a very different biomarker pattern compared to women who are well during pregnancy and then get depressed postpartum. And if What I, is an epigenetic biomarker? Oh, that's a great question. Let me come back to that in one yes, second. Yes, absolutely. But if I had not been able to clinically separate out those two groups, we would not have found the biomarkers. So epigenetic biomarkers are essentially methylation changes in genes. So we all have similar genes and all the cells in our bodies have the same genes, but some genes get turned on and some genes get turned off depending on if you're in the brain versus the liver. And it's epigenetic changes that turn those genes on and off, generally through methylation changes of the gene. Now, what's cool about epigenetics is that epigenetics can be influenced by the environment. So if you have certain exposures, you'll turn on certain genes and turn off other genes. And we're really just starting to look at epigenetic changes in psychiatric disorders. But if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. that there's kind of a biological vulnerability that with the influence of the outside environment can get turned on. It's really how we think about psychiatric disorders in general. So what we did was, I did not personally do this, but my basic science partner exposed mice to high levels of estrogen and then looked at the hippocampus in their brain and looked at what genes were epigenetically modified by exposure to the estrogen. We then cross-referenced that genetic analysis with a genetic analysis from women that I had followed through pregnancy and postpartum and had very carefully clinically characterized them. To make a long story short, we have two genes that are epigenetically modified in particular ways if they're going to be depressed in the postpartum time period. Wow. And it predicts about 80 to 85% wow. accurately. Now, we've, we have a lot of work to do. We don't totally understand what these two genes do. We do know that one of them is definitely involved in maternal care. So there's a knockout mouse model of one of the genes that we've identified in which the, the mother mice did not retrieve their pups mm. um, without that gene being able to be activated. Wow. So we know what's involved, but mm -hmm. we don't know the exact hard science. And we're trying to replicate our original study right now, looking at a larger sample of women. So we're, we're collecting something like 400 women who are pregnant and following them through pregnancy and postpartum. So 
to go back to your original question about kind of what's new on the horizon, if this continues to pan out, we may be able to take blood during pregnancy and predict whether someone is at high risk of being depressed in the postpartum time period or not. And then I think the rest of my career is really focusing on prevention, Mm -hmm. um, which would be one of the first things that we've ever, one of the first illnesses, psychiatric illnesses that we've ever been able to intervene is a preventative model as opposed to a reactive model. That's very cool. And so that would be really exciting. Excellent. Excellent. So thank you so much, Dr. Payne, for talking to us today. I wanted to end with sort of giving you space to talk about three to five big takeaways that you want us to leave this experience with. So I think the number one one is that treatment of psychiatric illness is really important not only for outcomes for the mom but for the infant as well. And I'd say number two would be most psychiatric medications can be used safely during pregnancy and it's important to treat psychiatric illness during pregnancy. Number three, I would say when preparing for for pregnancy, it's important to get a very individualized treatment plan that is based upon what medications work for you, whether you've been hospitalized, um, the severity of your illness, as well as an analysis of what medications are you on. Are you on a newer medication that we know nothing about, or are you on an older medication that we know plenty about? So to me, those are the three big clinical takeaways. Um, yeah, so thanks very much for spending time with us. I feel like, I mean, I've learned a lot, and I hope that our listeners will learn a lot, too. Do you have any uh, other thoughts to share with us? Um, no, other than if you've got a psychiatric illness, get it treated. <laughs> Fair enough. We will pass that along. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Dr. You. Payne. <laughs>